week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 2001, Bradley Wiggins won his first ever stage race at the Cinturón Ciclista Internacional a Mallorca. Wiggins was taking part in the race as part of a British national team which included his future Team Sky teammate Steve Cummings and a future double winner of the Ross, Chris Newton. The Mallorcan race consisted of five stages, kicking off with a 7.1km prologue time trial, followed by four rolling hilly stages. Wiggins did what he still does best and won the prologue. He then defended his leader's jersey from the front by also winning the opening road stage the following day. He finished all five stages in the top five to win the race overall by 28 seconds, while also finishing atop the points classification. He followed this up with victory in the Flesh de Sud the following month. Afterward, Bradley Wiggins did not win another stage race for almost 10 years when he won the 2009 Herald Sun Tour. Wiggins has since won two of the most prestigious stage races in the world, the Criterium de Dauphiné and Paris-Nice, as he completes his metamorphosis from track rider to full-on Grand Tour team leader. The Cinturón Ciclista Internacional a Mallorca itself has been around since 1964, where it has been a happy hunting ground for many budding cyclists. It was the scene of Sean Kelly's first international stage race win way back in 1976. A more recent winner is the promising Colombian Sergio Henao, who claimed victory in 2009 and is now a teammate of Bradley Wiggins at Team Sky. But like so many other Spanish races, the Cinturón Ciclista Internacional La Mallorca is struggling financially. Consequently, the 2012 edition has been cancelled, but the race organisers have vowed to do their utmost to bring the race back in 2013. Welcome to this, episode 6 of This Week in Cycling History, uh, with me, John Galloway, and my colleague, Killian Kelly. I'm really impressed that you've cut to the heart of the exciting racing that you know we can talk about this week with a race that I'd actually never heard of, Killian. Well done on that, mate. Yeah, yeah. So slightly removed from the heartland of Belgium, which everybody seems to be focused on this week. But we, we, we do get to it eventually. But uh, yeah, this this small Spanish race, I, I, I've never actually heard of it either, to be honest. But, you know, there, there are loads of these um, obscure stage races that, that are a, a happy hunting ground for, for young up-and-coming riders. And uh, I, I just thought it was interesting when I came across it that Wiggins won this race in, in the exact same manner that he's he's winning stage races now. You know, he, he won the prologue and, and def- defended from the front and, and he had his whole team behind him. And, you know, it, it is uh, like, like an echo of, of what Team Sky are doing for Wiggins now. It's almost Indirene-esque, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose that's the way Wiggins has been riding as well. And I I don't know about you, but it, it almost grates on me the way he talks about his racing style. I mean, at the end of the day... He can only ride the route that's in front of him, and if he wins the race, he's winning the race. But the way he talks about time trialing his way around these stage races, it 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 gets to me slightly. I must I must say, um, and and then I remember when after his Paris Nice victory, mm-hmm. um, he was being interviewed after the after the race on Eurosport, and he was asked, you know, the way he's doing this new warm down thing. Mm-hmm. He started, I think he started doing it at the Dauphiné last year, and you know, it makes complete sense to me. I mean, you, you do that much effort nice. to, to just get off, hop off your bike and get straight into the shower is is, is silly. No, most other athletes don't do it. You know, if you hang around after a, a Man United game at Old Trafford long enough, you'll see the players come back out and, and do a warm down afterwards. You know, it's just, it makes sense. But when he was asked about it in the interview, um, he, he seemed embarrassed that he was doing it. You know, he, he did a little wry grin and said, you know, this is what they're making me do almost. And, you know, I think he, if he's doing it 
why is he not proud of, of the fact that he's doing it? It's it, it reminds me of um of a of a kid in school that's done all his homework and is being slagged by the the um by the cool kids, you know, and he's just not willing to admit that he has done all his homework. But why not? Like, I mean, yeah. I, I, I know it's just a strange attitude to have. It's funny though. I mean, he's he's one of the many riders who's come from the, from the track onto the road, and I mean, we're going to talk about. Um, I'm thinking of one rider in particular when we move on to Flanders, who who was hugely successful in both the track and the road. Yeah. But um, they seem to come with a time trial and attitude because you know, that's that's what the track's about and what time trialing is about. It's about solo effort, well controlled. You know, if you're a, whether you're a pursuit rider or a time trialist, and it's about controlling the tiny details. So as you say, I don't know why he doesn't just embrace everything that Brailsford and Team Sky are bringing because they are. You know, it's that aggregation of small improvements that they keep talking about. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know whether... Obviously, he is embracing it, but he just seems to be unwilling to uh, embrace it publicly, you know, and be, be proud of the fact that he's he's making all these marginal gains. Uh, maybe I'm picking it up wrong, but that's the impression I got. But the... the I mean, I, I kind of glossed over quite quickly in the piece, but I mean, from the 10 years between he, he won a stage race and he didn't win another one, I, I kind of made that sound like a negative thing, but, geez, you know, he was unbelievably successful on the track in that time as well, you know. Oh, hugely, hugely. I think we might actually, uh, I'm coming round to the fact we might see him on the podium in Paris because um, he's, his attitude is is changing a wee bit and he's starting to sound a bit like a winner, uh, which is, is strange for me. And even though it's dull, given the, the route for this year's tour, I think it might be damn effective. Yeah, it is, and it definitely suits him. And I suppose the fascinating thing will be at this year's Tour de France is whether he, he'll be able to time trial his way around the three weeks and you know it'll be up to the likes of of our our, our friend Andy Schleck and and um I suppose maybe Valverde might have a say as well uh to to attack him and and really really put that racing style under pressure but I mean we have to say like Cadell Evans did pretty much the same thing last year you know when Andy Schleck and Contador were were attacking from miles out on these stages Evans pretty much just time trialed his way to the finish and, and he won the tour doing it. So, yeah. I mean, it's not a million miles away from what Wiggins did in the Dauphiné and Paris. So it does work. Now, having thrown a bit of a wild one for the start, um, we better move on to the meat of the, the topic. We're recording this Sunday morning and we've just been talking about how pissed off we are not to be in Bruges. And people who follow me on Twitter will know that last night I was in a particularly cross mood about it. Um, so let's have a piece on the Tour of Flanders. This week in cycling history in 1944, Rick van Steenbergen won the Tour of Flanders at the age of 19. The now legendary Belgian began racing at the top level in the midst of World War II. Because Belgium was still occupied by the Germans at the time, he had to forge a German identity card in order to turn professional. He won the Belgian national championships in his first year as a pro, and in 1944 he took part in his first Tour of Flanders. This was the last edition to ever finish in a velodrome, as the finish line came after 224 kilometres in the Quipke Velodrome in Ghent. Nine riders made it to the velodrome together, just behind the lone leader, Georges Claes. But a problem with directions caused Claes to crash at the entrance to the velodrome. Van Steenbergen was fastest out of the group of nine and won the Tour of Flanders aged just 19 years old. He remains the youngest ever rider to win a Monument Classic. This was the first major win of an incredible list of career wins which Van Steenbergen racked up in a career which spanned 24 years. 
He won the Tour of Flanders again in 1946, where he again won the race as Belgian national champion. He also won Paris-Roubaix and Flèche-Wallon twice each and Milan-San Remo. But he is perhaps most famous for being a triple world champion, a record only equaled by Alfredo Binda, Eddie Merckx and Oscar Freire. But not only was he prolific on the road, he was also a master on the track, where he won a staggering total of 1,591 races. Now, Rick Van Steenbergen, there's a man, a man whose nickname was Rick One, um, and Rick Two was Rick Van Loy, so when you're, when you're number one above Rick Van Loy, you know you were talking about a serious racer here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that figure that, I, that was put on his wins on the track is, is pretty unbelievable. <laughs> oh, I mean, over 1,500 races, I'm, I'm sure some of those might be, I don't know, maybe our exhibition races are, and, and maybe not, not quite official, but that's the figure I found, and, and my God, what a total, and that with an unbelievable road career. Uh, you know, people, people just don't do that anymore. Well, it makes Merckx look like a look like a, a rank amateur with his his poultry number of wins, but yeah. um, I've seen a lot of comment. And I actually wandered onto Wikipedia last night, um, and it was even made there that if Van Steenbergen had concentrated on other races, he might have done you know a better Grand Tour. Although he came second in the Giro, I think one year. Yeah, uh, but people forget these are the days where there weren't huge sponsorships. These guys had to ride to get paid. So the reason they were riding all the time was, you know, to get enough money to feed their families. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned money as well. I, I, during the research I did, I, I came across this story where um, when he won the Belgian Championships when he was only 19, he, he had never raced more than 200 kilometres before. And that race was 240 kilometres. And obviously he wasn't ex- expected to do well. He, he was this, this young guy in, in a race full of, full of seasoned pros. But uh, when a breakaway went up the road, he panicked and he offered this guy, Andre de Klerk, who was no, he, you know, he was a really good rider. He, he won Gent Wevelgem a couple of years later and uh, he offered him money to chase down the group. And this guy was only 19 in one of his first major races. And uh, de Klerk accepted the money and, uh, <laughs> and, and did, did the chasing. And, uh, you know, eventually Van Steenbergen won. So, you know, money, money played a part very, very early on in, in this guy's uh, career. And, he then mentioned that in, in 1943, he, uh, he, that was his first year as a pro, he raced 19 events on the road and he won 14 of them. And he said this about it. He said, it was my best year ever. I was never as strong. I had the willpower and the hunger to leave behind the ordinary life. After this, maybe the flame burned a little less brightly because I had already arrived. And it's to say that about when he was only 19, when he won the world championships, when he was pushing 35, yeah. is... is Unusual that that he should say that about his his own attitude, you know. Yeah, and he raced on into the sixties. I mean, he, he, he hugely prolific throughout his career. Um, yeah. The race that he won, I mean, you talked about it finishing in a velodrome. Yeah. And the only one I think that I can think of now is, is of course, Roubaix, which finishes in the the velodrome at Roubaix. Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic way to end any race. I wish they would do it more often if there's a velodrome handy. Well, I, I suppose it's become so synonymous with Paris Roubaix now. If another race tried it, there'd be, you know, cries of, of, you know, trying to rain on Paris Roubaix's parade or, or, or something like that. But it, it kind of it, it evokes the the conversation that people have been having a lot about the new Tour of Flanders finish and that the the more the more Van Gerritsbergen isn't in it anymore, and and you have this new new circuit. But, um, you know, these races change all the time. You know, pe- people are whinging about it now. But, like, the, the, 
the Capelmore w- w- wasn't wasn't in um, the Tour of Flanders route when Van Steenbergen won it. Yeah, but I mean, it, he's still he's still a double Tour of Flanders winner, and and that's what people remember. I know Michaeli Bartley was on Twitter, and I think there was an article on Cycling News ran with it as well. He won the race in 1996, and he he's come out and said, you know. Uh, uh, a Ron Van Vlanderen without the Kappelmoor isn't a true Ron Van Vlanderen. I mean, you know, try telling that to to Rick Van Steenberg and 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 I and there's there's plenty of of famous winners over the years who have won the Tour of Flanders without without that particular hill in it. You know, I mean, you know, get over it. Like, no, it's, it's still going to be a great race, but I think why people are, are are pissed off, if you like, is that the the moor is is part of the part of the kind of iconography of the race in modern media times do you know what I mean so people didn't see it every year before Eurosport started covering it well and I suppose it's like, it's like it's, you know it's like I suppose it's similar in ways to Alpe d'Huez in the Tour de France it's that it's that iconic but Alpe d'Huez isn't in the Tour de France in a year and I think it would take away slightly from the climb if it was yeah. the fact that it's it, it is missing for a couple of years in a row and then it's back and everybody gets excited again and Alpe d'Huez returns and you know the more Van Gerritsbergen will be back in Tour of Flanders eventually, and it'll be all the more exciting for the fact that it is. I, I think people are just more annoyed maybe than usual because I, I, I think the um, the reasons why it's not in it might be kind of financial, and 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 I think it's they're not for sporting reasons that it, that the that this particular burg was left out. So I think maybe that's that's left a little bit of a bitter taste. But, uh, you know, it, it'll be back. And I tell you what, people won't be moaning when they're watching the finale over the uh, the Oud Quermont and the Paterburg today. Well, I mean, it's it's going to be a hard, hard race, and I'm I'm absolutely gagging for it. It's, it's, yeah, me too, me now, too. You've got, because as you know, we do extensive preparation for this show. I mean, people can clearly tell by listening to professionalism every week. <laughs> but you've got a note on the thing which says, was never in jail for stealing drugs from a chemist. No. <laughs> what, what the hell are you talking about, man? Well, again, just to rag on Wikipedia, again, it's one of my favourite things to do, but it says on Wikipedia that he was in jail um, for a period after he after he stopped racing. Uh, he admitted himself, like so many others, when he stopped his career, it was just a complete full stop and he didn't know what to do and he ended up falling in with a, with a bit of a dodgy crowd, as he described them. And... Uh, yeah, the, the rumor is that he was in jail for stealing drugs from a chemist during this period. But uh, I, I found this article, this interview with him, which uh, completely debunks that myth. And he said that that's absolutely not true, and that one of his one of the people that he did end up hanging around with at that time uh, was was related in that sort of trouble. And what happened was Van Steenbergen was just asked to go down to the police station to answer questions about this other guy and that was the extent of it and for whatever reason people took from that that he ended up in jail for a while but he but he didn't wikipedia people take care it's uh it's a wild country yeah anyway we'll move on to our last piece this week which is again about the ron van flanderen um and it's about one of the most iconic british riders in history uh, tom simpson in 1961 tom simpson won the tour of flanders in doing so, Simpson became the first rider from outside of mainland Europe to win one of the five monument classics. Simpson had been a pro on the continent for more than two years and had yet to land a big win, but as he approached the 1961 Tour of Flanders, he was in incredible shape. He said he was completely in top form and was ready for anything. Simpson found himself in the small group of leading riders just five miles from the finish in the town of Veteran. Simpson attacked and only one rider managed to stick to his wheel, the Italian Nino de Filippis. While Simpson was only beginning his career with an as yet modest palmares, De Philippus was the opposite. 
He had already won two stages of the Vuelta, six stages of the Giro and seven stages of the Tour, as well as the Tour of Lombardy. Simpson knew that de Philippus was one of the best sprinters around at the time, but he also felt that he would be unable to drop him before the finish. So Simpson concocted a rather outrageous plan which brought him the victory. Simpson himself describes the finish as follows. I started my sprint about a kilometre from the line, and as I anticipated, de Philippus took my wheel. With 300 metres to go, I feigned that I had blown up and I slowed slightly. Immediately, the Italian took a flyer off my wheel and passed me on my right, going like a train for the line. As he went, I restarted sprinting, going flat out and drew alongside him on his right. I reasoned that he would look back to see where I was, and since he had gone by me on the right, he would look for me to his left. He did just that and got the shock of his life, for I was nowhere to be seen. In the split second it took him to turn his head to the opposite side, I went past him. He had slowed momentarily through being taken by surprise like that, and I was over the line just a wheel in front of him. It was the biggest win of Tom Simpson's career. He would go on to win Milan San Remo, the Tour of Lombardy, Paris Nice, and the World Championships. Now, in, in the early 21st century, um, I think Cycling Weekly said that Chris Boardman was the most uh, most important British rider of the 20th century, and Tommy Simpson came second. I'm sorry, I don't care about the drugs connotation. I love Chris Boardman. You know, he's the he's the time trialist in my era. And I loved watching him race um, and met him on a, a couple of occasions. He opened uh, an extension to the shop I was working in at the time. Lovely, lovely bloke. But Tommy Simpson, you just need to look at his Palmares. Different class. Yeah, and I, I think, um, like we talked last week about Laurent Fignon and pe- he gets remembered for losing the 1989 Tour of France. And, you know, uh, that's that's the one sentence that seems to follow his name wherever he goes. And... Uh, Whereas he actually had some fantastic victories. And I think the same might be true for Tom Simpson. I'm not trying to equate dying with losing a Tour de France. But, uh, you know, everybody remembers Tom Simpson. And the one line that you would remember is that he he died on Mont Ventoux in the Tour de France. But, I mean, it's easy to forget that he had all these incredible wins as well. And uh, with the Tour of Flanders amongst them. I mean, he he won Milan San Remo as well. And and the Tour of Lombardy. He, He won the Tour of Lombardy wearing the rainbow jersey as well, but not many... Not many riders have managed to do. Yeah. And, I mean, the story that you tell about that finish in Flanders sums up just about all the stories that you hear riders talking, you know, about Simpson. It says he was a canny, canny, intelligent rider. And that's a cracking bit of uh, bit of roadcraft to win that race. Yeah. And uh, the, the the Italian, De, De Philippus, he, he complained afterwards because... Uh, the the route at the end of the Tour of Flanders, which I'm not exactly sure of the route, but they said they did three laps at the end of it, which I don't know, maybe maybe it's a similar enough route to what we're going to see today. But um, they passed the finish line, you know, three times, twice before the, the end of the race. And the Philippus complained that uh, in between the second lap and the end of the race, that the finish line flag had fallen down in the wind and that he, he couldn't, he didn't know where the finish line was when he was coming up. And that's why... He, he, the, the the confusion arose and t- Tom Simpson was able to do what he did, but and and he complained madly afterwards. And the Italians approached Tom Simpson and uh, asked him would he accept a draw. Yeah, I, I can imagine the repost to that one. No yeah. would be the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I'm actually in the middle of reading Tom Simpson's autobiography at the moment. It's only a, it's only a small short book it's called cycling is my life and he, he actually as a true yorkshireman he actually wrote in his autobiography by gum i was <laughs> i was not going to let anyone take away my first classics win now the classics 
that are particularly memorable to me. I mean, we all love the big dramatic breakaways, you know, and the, the solo the solo wins where you're clearly the hardest man in the in the field. Yeah, and in fact, I've been talking about that. Funnily enough, Bradley Wiggins and Team Sky is uh, is tipped Cancellara for for today's win, which is quite strange tipping a rider from another team. Yeah. But um, the ones that really stick in your memory are the ones like um, Oscar Freire nipping underneath Eric Zabel in San Remo. Yeah. And, I mean, that's... Can you imagine the excitement or the, the sheer disappointment of thinking you've won a race? You've got the adulation of the crowd and suddenly you've lost. And I'm thinking particularly of Johan Museo and uh, being pit by Gianni Bugno in Flanders in 94. Like, it's, it's one thing losing... A, a relatively minor race because you're too busy celebrating, but but for that to happen in a monument classic, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you get over that. Um, but like you say, the 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 classics that that where say like Cancellara had, when he won Paris Roubaix to the Tour of Flanders in 2010, where he just simply rode away. I mean, they're unbelievably impressive rides, and and to be able to do it is just mind blowing. But the really really exciting ones are the ones where. You know, a few riders come to the finish in the end, and there's a bit of attacking, and there's a bit of a cat and mouse, and you know they're they're far more more exciting than than seeing just one rider right away. So I mean, I don't know what type of race we're going to get today. I I often equate it to I know you're not a football man, John, but it's like um it's like watching Barcelona play. I mean, they're they're probably the greatest team. They're definitely the greatest team of of my generation anyway. And uh, watching them play is unbelievably impressive. But it's actually not that exciting because you know what's going to happen. Yeah, you, you, they're just utterly dominant, and it's it's crazy difficult what they do. But it you know it does get slightly boring, and um, so I, I personally I hope that maybe two or three or four riders uh, are, are together with five or six k to go. I think I think we'll see a very small group. I mean, certainly four or five. Um, Boonin's on record as saying that uh, he doesn't think he needs to drop anyone, and he thinks he's strong enough to win the sprint. Yeah, but, uh, I'd I'd be a bit worried about that. If I was Boonin, I'd want to, I'd be wanting to come to the finish line on my own. Um, but well, I I just wonder. I mean, I think I'd say Tom Boonin probably thinks of the riders that can get to the finish at the front. He probably has the strongest sprint. But uh, I I just have a sneaky feeling about Peter Sagan. Yeah, if, you know, I I know he's young and he's probably relatively well. I'd say I was about to say he's relatively untested over this distance but sure he came fourth in Milan Remo, you know yeah. so uh, you know if, if he's there at the finish he could really give Boonen a, a scare in a sprint if Boonen thinks if Boonen has that much confidence you know it happened to him in Paris Tours uh, last was it last year or the year before mm-hmm. and uh, he came to a sprint with Philippe Gilbert and I think it was Greg Van Avermaet and uh, um, or maybe it was Dennis Glimsenoff I can't remember but anyway you would expect Boonen to have won that sprint and, and he didn't and again in Het Volk it happened to him you know he came to the finish and he probably was confident in the sprint and Seth Van Mark beat him yeah. so I, I think you're right to maybe worry a little bit about about um, that, that approach from Boonen if I was him now I'd be trying to I'd be trying to distance people Anyway, we don't appear too much a fool because people will know whether uh, whether we're right or wrong at the end very, very soon. So we won't yeah. make any concrete predictions. Tom Simpson, I mean, he's a bit further back in history than a lot of the things we've talked about. I mean, we focused, a lot, I think, a lot on our era. Um, uh, but there's a lot of footage of Simpson and a lot of really good documentaries worth watching, even if you just wander around YouTube. Yeah, and if you if you go to YouTube as well, there's a, there's a one of the most famous documentaries about Tom Simpson is called Death on a Mountain, and that's actually available on YouTube too in its entirety. It's in little chunks, but it's there. It's a BBC made made show, 
And uh, there's another one called Something to Aim At, which is slightly older. And I was watching that last night, and there was a great story about Tom Simpson and his bowler hat. He kind of became famous for, for wearing this bowler hat. Um, and uh, he, he said that after he won the Tour of Flanders in, in 1961, that's when he started wearing it. He, he became a little bit famous, and he, he played up to this image of a stereotypical Englishman, and he walked around with a brolly and, and this, this bowler hat. And uh, he said that... Um, after a while, he, he wasn't winning any races. He didn't win any more races in 1961, and he didn't win any races in 1962. And uh, his wife said to him, do you know what? I don't think you've won a race since you started wearing that stupid hat. And uh, then eventually he took it off and uh, threw it in the back of his car, and he didn't wear it again. And two days later was his next race, which was Bordeaux, Paris, <laughs> and he won it for the first time since he won. Uh, that was Bordeaux, Paris in 1963, which was just over two years after he had won the Tour of Flanders in 1961. So he never wore his baller hat again after that. It just shows you, actually, that looking like a prat can undermine your self-confidence. And confidence is so much <laughs> a bike racing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm wanting to go away and uh, look at some Belgian beer on a shelf without buying it to get ready for the Tour of Flanders. And I've no doubt that you want to, to get ready to get out on your bike and then watch it. Yep, yeah, that's the plan. Yep, we'll leave people now. Um, and... What I'd say is some people have been incredibly kind and left comments on iTunes and I'd encourage people to do that because it, it helps other people find the show. Um, and people have been really kind with subscriptions too. I think we've, we've almost got enough to cover your sky bill now each month, Killian. If you want to subscribe, you can just go to velocast.cc and do it. And we're, we're incredibly grateful. And if you want to leave a comment on iTunes, that's great as well. And we'll be back next week. And I think there's, there's something else with Cobbles to talk about next week. So I'm sure you'll find some obscure race in uh, southern Africa to talk about, Killian. <laughs> I'll do my best.